0: In the new episode of the Law of the Future podcast, I talk to Ash Costello. She's a lawyer specializing in blockchain and privacy law. And we're talking about that, but she's also giving us a lot of insights about the development of NFT and the use cases of blockchain. It was a great interview, a lot of fun always when talking to Ash. So have fun.
1: Welcome to the Law of the Future podcast with Dennis Hilleman. This podcast is all about technology, politics, and law. Dennis Hilleman is a partner in an international law firm. He wants to change our mind on regulating new technologies. All opinions expressed
0: in the podcast are the personal opinions of Dennis or his guests. And here is Dennis. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of the Law of the Future podcast. My name is Dennis Hilleman. Glad you joined this episode. We have Ash Costello today on the show. Ash is a lawyer from Ireland who is specializing both in blockchain and privacy. She knows a lot about privacy issues with blockchain. We're talking about that and her new project, Hashed Privacy. But well, we are also talking about all the new developments with concerning blockchain, the use cases, and the NFT sphere. It was a great interview, lots of fun, and Ash really has great insights and knows a lot of good projects. So have fun with this episode. And if you want to be on this show, if you have great topics, let me know. Contact me on LinkedIn. Hi, Ash. Great to have you on the episode.
1: Hi, Dennis. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be involved in this podcast.
0: It's my pleasure to have you on board because we've been in contact now for quite a while and it's always been a pleasure and it's always super interesting uh, to learn what you're doing. And I especially appreciate that you're so deep into the blockchain space from a regulatory aspect. There are not many lawyers working in blockchain and it's always great to exchange with you
1: and likewise it's um especially in your work with the blockchain lawyers network thank you for setting that up it's great to meet other lawyers in the blockchain space as you say there's not many of us and on the financial side it's it's a s- sweet evolution from you know regular financial services in the us and in europe and in you know singapore etc to go from um the financial services and to to expand the scope to include digital assets, cryptocurrencies, etc., you know, tokenization. But it's fascinating to see how blockchain is changing the way other legal practices are working, not just in the privacy space, which I know you've been involved with, and I'm very involved with, but real estate, um, uh, the whole scope of of industry, in particular, the legal industry is changing dramatically.
0: It absolutely is. So, just like tell us, please, how how are things? How did you get into blockchain? And let us know about your career.
1: I've come to blockchain like most people our age, Dennis. I've come to blockchain um, mid-career. I have met people over the course of the past few years who, you know, began mining Bitcoin in their basements at fourteen, but that's a little bit behind you and I. Um, My career, most of it, I spent my career as a financial services lawyer in law firms, mainly in London, setting up investment funds, um, banks, custodians, all of that kind of thing in the financial services world. And then I moved to Dublin, where I'm from, I'm Irish, and worked as global head of legal at MUFG Investor Services for a while. And that's when I began to work with privacy. GDPR came along in 2016. And as a multinational which dealt with AML and KYC, several of the entities I dealt with at, you know, I oversaw as global head at Mitsubishi at, at MUFG, had to do the AML and KYC of all of our clients in Ireland. So GDPR was a huge Um, compliance challenge for us. It was one they met absolutely well. And, you know, we were probably one of the first to be compliant. So it was very much, uh, you know, all hands on deck, drop everything. There were very few lawyers who could help us become compliant in the time period we had. There was a two-year transition period, but when you are a huge multinational, You know, we had um, entities ourselves in 22 different countries and then our clients were global. So we had to comply not just with GDPR, but with global privacy laws and adapt the AML and the KYC policies and practices and our own data storage systems and capacities to be able to cope with the challenging new GDPR requirements. So I found privacy law to be fascinating and I'd always really liked financial services law, in particular investment fund law. I thought that was really creative, really interesting. But the whole new world of privacy, which was opening up, you know, this, although it had been recognized in Europe as a human right, the it wasn't ever really used. And this was giving privacy back to people. It was putting it in, you know, individuals' hands. And that was something I found really as an area of law, something really interesting to see that this would have dramatic changes globally. And those changes are now beginning to happen. We're seeing a tsunami of privacy regulation, you know, with um, the CCPA in California, with the recent Colorado law, Brazil, you know, all these, um, China has a new law. So many um, countries globally have adopted a version of GDPR because it makes sense to have a higher threshold of privacy and individuals are demanding higher privacy. So when, so that is one tsunami which has been happening. And then I've come across, I attended a conference just because it seemed interesting, blockchain. I'd heard, you know, I'd heard rumors of Bitcoin. I went to a blockchain conference here in Dublin and I just wanted to know more about it. I'd heard the word. I had no idea what it meant. I knew it was some way related to Bitcoin. I didn't really know what that meant either and thought, um, it sounds interesting. I want to know more. And like most people who discover blockchain, when you realize what blockchain enables, you see how it's changing the world and how it is, it is, I think, changing the world the way, cars changed us from, you know, the horse and cart. It's the equivalent of that. We have So it's that much of a, a change. And it's probably even more. We're only at the beginning of what block, discovering what blockchain technology is enabling. So more than, you know, horse and cart to cars, it's probably a horse and cart to planes is probably what blockchain is doing. And if you think of, is it Moore's law? The degree of... Um, a friend of mine, Veronica McGregor at ShapeShift, she says Moore's Law is old news. Moore, Moore's Law is too slow. Blockchain technology is changing industry and is enabling real-time capacity and real-time development. And it is changing industry so fast that, you know, the the rule of Moore's law is kind of old. Um, So we're at the beginning of this blockchain revolution. One of the interesting things when I began to look into blockchain was people were saying in Europe that GDPR would stifle innovation and it would push innovation out of Europe because it was requiring privacy and companies could no longer use data. They could no longer use individuals' data and the opposite is actually happening, especially where you have the interaction of blockchain and privacy. Blockchain, as people know, it's real-time information available publicly. So, which is phenomenal, which is why it's changing everything so much. You know, it is trusted information available simultaneously to all parties, which is phenomenal. Um and then the you know GDPR and similar privacy protection laws—they don't stifle the sharing of data. They just keep private data private. And there's you know business data. It doesn't need to be sharing people's personal data. And what has happened now, instead of GDPR stifling blockchain, are stifling. Innovation. The opposite is happening. There are so many privacy solutions which are making a better world for individuals and for businesses. One of the biggest expenses that companies have is their data management system. So blockchain, in essence, is you know a very powerful data storage system and data sharing system. GDPR and other privacy laws help companies prioritize which data they actually need rather than shoving all the data on there forever it is helping them streamline the data that they need you don't necessarily need you know it's helping people focus and prioritize minimize the data they store Um, zero knowledge proof is one of the clear winners when it comes to privacy solutions in particular for blockchain Safi Goldwasser is one of the geniuses who created um, zero knowledge proofs back in the 80s and I'm sure they were being used before blockchain, but in the last, you know, five years or so, there are now thousands of different types of zero knowledge proofs. And the evolution in just this, this is now an industry in itself. It's a sweet spot between blockchain and between privacy. And there's maybe 20 or so different privacy solutions, for example, ring signatures, multi-party signatures, white noise, salting, peppering, et cetera, et cetera. Zero knowledge proofs is just one of those, and even in this tiny area within this, you know, sweet spot, um, zero knowledge proof, it's own industry in itself. And the evolution of zero knowledge proofs, just in the last five years, since I've been looking at it, it's gone from hundreds of types of zero knowledge proofs to literally thousands. There are several different GitHub channels dedicated solely to zero knowledge proofs, and. They started off being quite clunky and quite slow. I'll explain them. A zero-knowledge proof, it's a way to prove a fact without showing the underlying evidence. But the example that's commonly given is showing that you're over 21 without having to show your passport. It's trusted proof that I, as an individual, I'm able to show. Another example commonly given is I can prove, for example, that I am a lawyer without having to show my parchments and having to carry those around with me. So it's a wonderful system which enables people to just show the, the, the bit that needs to be shown. For example, a bouncer at a bar, they don't need to know what age people are. They just need to know that people are over whatever age is the required age.
0: Which which probably, if I didn't just come in, which probably was a target of at least EU GDPR as well, data, personal data, minimalization, not you, not revealing all personal data. I mean, we all have filled out forms for opening accounts or get, uh, doing business with someone where we ask us, hey, why do they need this data?
1: Exactly. Too much data was given. And then people began to be afraid of having too little data. And most of the time, you know, industry and corporations didn't use or even want this data, but everybody else was asking for it. So they felt they needed it. And and then they felt they needed to keep it. We might need it. Uh, you know, it's the old hoarding principle. And but now people are you know being encouraged to purge data people are seeing the benefits of deleting you have much lower data storage systems um, what, with the evolution especially during covid of working from home and um, you know uh cybersecurity has become much more of an issue and with the sophistication of cyber hacking one of the big risks then is data, your data storage. If you have less data in your systems, if you're complying with GDPR, et cetera, you will have the minimum amount of data required. You have a much greater risk of loss, which is a good thing. You're much less of a target to cyber hackers if they know your data light, which is, you know, it's win-win.
0: Absolutely. one hundred. Mm. I 100% agree on that. So... Now you made a big circle already. How you got into blockchain, and how you got into how you connected the blockchain with privacy, your other passion. Just let us take one step back before we dive deep into the privacy matter, which I think is super important when it comes to blockchain. What what is it that you personally think is the most fascinating aspect about blockchain? And second, what do you think are the biggest use cases? outside of crypto of course we all know crypto is a big use case but what do you think are the biggest use case from your point of view outside of crypto
1: first of all the most i'll start with your second question first which is that yes. one. the biggest use case i think it's already happening i worked with john walbert and the guys at the baseline protocol for a while um supply chain and and supply chain management and also um regular business so People are using, for example, the baseline and other blockchains to just transmit data privately, securely, safely between organizations. Yes. So one organization, um, these are, I'm going to, you know, company ABC is yeah. sending information to company XYZ and they're doing it across blockchains now because it is immediate. It's it's simultaneous and it is safe and it's secure. And using zero knowledge proof um, to transmit the data, it is private. And it's a strange, not a strange use, but it's something that people didn't anticipate would happen. That people are using blockchain, which was, oh, the private, you know, the publicity, the transparency, it's, it's a bad thing in a way. Instead, people are using it combined with zero knowledge proofs and a few other privacy solutions to just transmit data. And so that, I think, is an unexpected consequence where it's just being used as a, because it is a data storage system, which means it's a very efficient data transmission system as well. And that, I think, is, I guess, because I was involved in that, that's something that is already happening. I've seen that happening, just data transmission system. And that's probably a better way to describe, you know, all the other things that were happening. Real estate, um, some of the other use cases, I think, um, real estate and conveyancing is uh, a use case, which is fascinating. And, um, you know, to buy and sell a house in some countries can take 22 weeks. In the UK, they did a test case of, you know, a they took a process of you know an actual real life case of a house that was sold and the normal conveying process. The process in this particular sale took 22 weeks, which is representative of a normal sale. Yes. Um, when they started, and then so they did that as a track record, which is see you know as a as a comparator. They did the same transaction then using blockchain technology, and it was 10 minutes. So that is what is happening in the real estate world, and. The the UK is now set up to have um, blockchain-enabled conveyancing. So are several of the countries in the Middle East. So are several of the countries in um, Northern Europe. And I know in the US, real estate agencies are pivoting to incorporate blockchain technology because their industry is going to have to pivot so much. The work that real estate agents do is going to change dramatically. So they're now pivoting to incorporate blockchain technology to be ready for the future. They see the future. Their work is going to be so much easier, so much faster. You know, there may or may not be the writing on the wall for some real estate agencies. You're always still going to need someone to show you around your house. You know, you're always going to need someone to bring you to houses to help you collate Um you know houses for sale in your area, so they're being very proactive in the U.S. and California, in particular, in pivoting their business model to incorporate a new technology um, to be ready for when the um, the land registries in their countries fully adopt blockchain. Another use case, which is fascinating, and I think this has touched everyone. You know, even in the news, it's probably the most famous one. Um, nfts non-fungible tokens Uh, i think they're fascinating as someone with an interest in art it's great to see artists finally having um an easier way to trade and to to get visibility it's creating digital i guess digital galleries and um you know people now have wallets it's monetizing art in a way which wasn't previously available which is fabulous Can
0: Mm -hmm. you maybe explain what an NFT is in your simple terms? Because I don't think that all listeners are acquainted with the term yet. They probably have heard of it, but they might not understand it. And sometimes lawyers can explain things pretty easily easily because the technical guys just make it technical (laughs) and we sometimes we have a good way of summarizing things so if you could just explain what nfts are and why there's so much buzz about them i think that would be pretty delightful for many listeners
1: certainly it's a non-fungible token so token is a very popular word in the blockchain and the crypto world token just means a unit of ownership so it can represent you know a bitcoin is an actual token um it's used for everything interchangeably because there's uh, not yet clarity on whether these tokens are assets or whether they're currencies, but they are a unit of ownership. Um, so your token is unit of ownership. Your fungible part, fungible means exchangeable and then non. So it's a non-exchangeable token. And the most, the first example, I think, well, one of the first examples is art, for example. So people were tokenists. It's people are the way it's working is people are taking digital images and uploading them onto various different blockchains. Not so, for example, you can draw something, dentist, or create a digital art, or you take a photo of something you like, and then you have a digital image, and you upload it onto a, a blockchain platform such as OpenSea or Rarible or one of the others, and. You, which are digital galleries for NFTs. And so your piece of digital art is available there. And maybe you have 10 copies of the same piece of digital art. Let's call it, you know, Dennis's version of the Mona Lisa. And even though these 10, even though it's the same, even though these 10 images are exactly the same, it's just cut and pasted. All the images are exactly the same. When we say they're non-fungible, as in non Exchangeable, the history of each of these um, pieces of digital art is different. So, the waterfall of ownership, as you sell, you know, art, you know, um, unit one, unit two, unit three, etc., they will go to different purchasers. So, say I purchased the first one, Grace Kelly purchases the second, Lady Gaga purchases the third. So, I purchased the first one um, and then I sell it on to whoever. So, You're able to. The thing with blockchain then is it is um, transparent and uh, trustworthy proof of ownership. Everyone can see that I've bought it from you. Everyone can see that Lady Gaga has bought the third one and that Grace Kelly has bought the second one. And that waterfall of ownership flows down through. And sometimes who the owner of a certain product makes that product more valuable. For example, I went to. an exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London a few years ago of, you know, um, an exhibition of Grace Kelly's dresses. So they were just a bunch of dresses. Would that be interesting in a normal world? No, they're just dresses, random, ordinary, not particularly pretty dresses, but they were worthy of an exhibition just because Grace Kelly wore them. Um, similarly, you know, the piece of art I buy from you, nobody's going to care. But if Grace Kelly owns this an identical piece of art, um, Grace Kelly is selling that piece of art. The fact that she's owned it will probably make that piece of art more valuable. Yeah. Lady Gaga purchasing the third piece of art, again, exactly the same as the ones that Grace and I have bought. But will it be more valuable because Lady Gaga is selling it? Probably. So you have a waterfall of ownership. You're able to prove the provenance all the way down. So that is what blockchain enables. And that is one of the fascinating things to see, Who, how people, even just owning something, will change it. Something, I, I'm a member of the expert panel of the European Blockchain Observatory in yeah. France, and they're producing a report at the moment on NFTs. So I was involved in their work on helping them source Interesting use cases of NFTs, and one of the fascinating things um, there was the use of NFTs. So Grant Blaisdell, um, he and his mom, incidentally, have set up um, an NFT to crowdsource to crowdsource um, the purchasing of space technology. Um, another really interesting use case of NFTs, and this is by a company, they're establishing um, something uh, in 20 countries initially. Um, I can't remember the name of their company, unfortunately, I'll I'll give it to you separately. What they're doing is absolutely fascinating. They are using NFTs in the conveyancing space. So, this is fascinating. Um, so... If you take, for example, I'm going to use Kim Kardashian as an example. So using their NFT system, so Kim Kardashian, for example, she takes, you know, her floor plan of her house. and She wants to um, sell off 49% of the floor plan of her house using nfts so you and i so she keeps 51% so you and i can't go and you know live in her house but she is able to sell off 49% of her house meaning she keeps the majority of the ownership so uh you and i can buy via nft um you know a, a square inch of kim kardashian's kitchen and just the way you buy you know a pub or a restaurant um you know you have the floor plan you have you know the deeds which are on the land registry of whatever country it's in you can buy a square inch of kim kardashian's kitchen for example where she keeps her coffee pot or you know you buy a square inch of her garden where a camellia grows but you pick which of the square inches that are for sale in this house that you want and you actually um You get the deed of this particular square inch of land Um, and then because going back to the fungible bit, um, it is a token, it is interchangeable. You can actually then when you want a cup of coffee, you can actually sell this NFT. You can exchange it for a cup of coffee or something else. So it's win-win. So this is being rolled out, first of all, in the UK. And then it's going to be rolled out in the US and rolling it out across 20 different countries around the world to start off with. This is a game changer for the property industry. It means people can and they have found banks, challenger banks who are going to give mortgages. So say, for example, Dennis, you want to buy a house in London. Mm -hmm. The house is worth a million. Fine. But you now only need to source um, 51... Well, fifty-one percent of a million, um, you know, five one oh five five hundred and ten hundred thousand, and then you're able to crowdsource the other forty-nine percent using NFTs. So it means you only need, and then, so you only need to get a mortgage. To be honest, of maybe seventy percent of that fifty-one percent. Do you see where I'm getting?
0: I see where I'm where you're getting. It means that in this scenario that you last described. You will probably you will perhaps allow people to buy buildings and to invest in real estate that would otherwise have been ex- excluded because of the rules of a capital market
1: exactly so you cross- we, we put
0: we put out the banks out of the scheme in that scenario and we let people from all over the world be able to invest into real estate and of course that would of course, allow for the real estate industry a whole new sector of potential buyers and sellers. And knowing the impact of the real, industry, real estate industry we see in the financial world, this would probably be very helpful. I mean, if we look back, the Lehman crisis in 2008 started with a real estate crisis. And now currently, we obviously face a real estate crisis in China. Mm. So possibly mm. we all have an have an interest that the real estate industry whatever we think of it, but we probably have an interest that it that it keeps on going before it creates another financial crisis.
1: Exactly. And the interesting bit about this particular model of an NFT, so a digital piece of art, for example, the, the art you produced earlier as an example, you know, your representation of Mona Lisa, does that have any inherent value? Art is very subjective. So maybe today mm. you can sell it for a million, but maybe tomorrow 20 million, but maybe... Yeah. You know, maybe just $5, whereas property does have an inherent value. And yeah. so even if it's only a square inch of Kim Kardashian's kitchen, it still has value as Kim Kardashian's kitchen. It is still a piece of land. It still has some kind of inherent value. Yes. And so the way this will work is it's fascinating. It's just an app, pretty much like, I'm going to say, Tinder I understand the app works. You scroll through a lot of, you know, regular houses, celebrities, houses, whatever, you know, pubs, commercial. It it works for commercial as well as residential. I understand. You, You choose how much you want to invest. One of the benefits of this then as well is maybe I only have, I want to invest in property. I can't afford a house or I just want to speculate in the property market. Yeah. I have 5000 to invest. Obviously, I can't buy property for that. Yeah. If I can have a slightly diversified portfolio, I can buy maybe with this $5,000, I can buy maybe 10 different assets. Of property, you know, for a thousand each, and yes, spec- um, yeah, so it's fascinating in that regard. And then, you know, I just cash out. You know, it is exchangeable. I can just, you know, exchange for something. You know, someone. It is property. Um, someone else is going to hopefully be able to buy it for me in the future. And property does tend to rise in value more consistently than, for example, art or other um, assets.
0: Which is which is the second interesting aspect of this because um, as you mentioned earlier I could cash in um, the real estate token that I have but uh, uh, cashing in we always think then you make dollars out of it, euros, pound but cashing in in this scenario could also mean I could exchange it for a different value and right now we are living in a world that classical file currencies are making the world go around. We, we buy our coffees, we buy our food in dollars euros pounds but the thing that the nft scenarios could actually create is an exchange economy again and that we exchange values against each other's and not currencies of course probably the many classic things like buying a coffee and buying food will still be done in dollars or euros or pounds or perhaps even in cryptocurrencies or cdbcs when they come but other transactions where we, for example, get a car or invest in an old timer or so, maybe people will ac- will then accept other values like NFT tokens of real estate, like you propose. And I think that's a fascinating thought that will change the economy. That will impose new legal challenges, but it will also change how we think about values and. Um, the thing is, many values that we have by today, especially real estate, is unused. Like, I mean, you have a build, you are the owner of real estate. You don't mostly now. You don't do anything with it. Your house is on that. Your family lives in it. But the value that you have, it just lies there. It's not used. And with NFT tokens, that could change to the better. I don't know. It's just that it could actually change. So I NFTs on that aspect really interesting.
1: I think it will be really interesting, as you say, because if you want to release equity, you know, if you have a mortgage, um, it'll be interesting to see how this works with mortgages. But if you do want to release, if you put a lot of equity in your property, for example, in your house, and you want to release equity, you just need to sell off a few LFTs of your house. Yeah. Um, if you have a mortgage, you probably need your bank's approval to do this. But a lot of people you still contain, you still retain control. Maybe you have much better terms than you would have from the banks. If you have, you know, um, you, you, yeah, you can sell off maybe 10% of your house via this NFT yeah. and you buy it back then when you're able to buy it back, rather than being in a system where you have a mortgage with interest, et cetera, and, you know, letters from the bank, et cetera. And the bank may not give you 10%, you know, it's, uh, Sometimes equity releases from property are quite difficult when you have mortgages, or even if you don't have a mortgage, if you're trying to get a loan, it can be quite difficult. So, this is a way for people to access cash, crowdsourcing against assets. And I'm sure um, property is one of the areas. It's an actually, there is a it's completely it's not really considered an area of DeFi, but I think it will become more and more recognized as a source of DeFi, the NFT and the peer to peer um capacity of blockchain the way that allows trusted interactions between individuals without having to have a central intermediary such as a bank or a real estate agent or any other kind of intermediary is going to change we're beginning to see how this is happening and as we move more into the industry and as people create more facilities to allow this to happen we we st- we're going to see such fascinating changes in how we live our daily lives. I think it will do a lot to remove poverty. There will be a lot of um, supply chain. I think supply chains, the way they're going to transfer wealth to to to, to other countries, from rich countries, is going to be phenomenal. For example, jean um Levay, she works with um, AgriLedger and she is... Um, building a a blockchain to with Haiti to um, the way it works is the Haitian farmers retain ownership of their produce up until the last minute. So that when you and I buy bananas or mangoes or Mm -hmm. good lettuces, for example, um, in our local grocery shops, that's when the Haitian farmers transmit ownership. currently, Mm -hmm. Um, with the older system, they sold their their produce in Haiti for cents in the dollar, if they were lucky, to middlemen. The middlemen sold it to other middlemen, to other middlemen, to other middlemen. At each stage, you know, um, extra margins are being added on, and then it finally arrives in our stores, and we pay whatever it is—fifty cents for a banana here in Europe. Mm. But, um, What happens now is using blockchain technology and the peer-to-peer and the trusted value, when we pay our 50 cents using Jean-Vierre system, I think this is how it works. When we pay our 50 cents for our banana here in Europe, there's a waterfall of payments to all those intermediaries on the way, and the Haitian farmer gets a better price um, than he would have had if he had had to sell, transmit ownership of that banana back in Haiti Two or three weeks before on that supply chain system, and that kind of continuation of ownership up until the last stage is going to dramatically change how supply chains redistribute wealth to poorer regions and to the farmers. It will be a fa- it's a wonderful system which is changing lives for the for the better
0: it absolutely is and I really love how you're so enthusiastic about all of this, but now I need to do a little cut because. We also wanted to uh, to talk about your new project on hashed privacy. And just first of all, ex- maybe you would give us an introduction of why does blockchain have have obviously, at least from the point of some people, a problem with EU GDPR and privacy rules? What's the tension?
1: Certainly. So the tension is, blockchain is... Peer-to-peer, it is simultaneous transmission of data and that data is um, dependent on the blockchain and most blockchains are public. So usually, you know, when we transmit data, it is public. For example, if I buy Bitcoin on the Bitcoin blockchain, people can see that my wallet has received Bitcoin. And if I transmit onwards, Um, other people can see that I've transmitted it onwards. And this is something that people have been using. This transparency is wonderful. It also has downsides. One example, actually, of the transparency is when people have been launching coins, they were sending them to... um, uh, Vitalik Buterin, the founder of Ethereum, to give the impression that he was buying their their new coins as the oh look, Vitalik has purchased our new coin, he believes in us, you should believe mm-hmm. in us. And that way they were um, you know, giving the impression that they were backed by, by Vitalik Buterin. However, uh it, it turns out that he wasn't aware of, that he was receiving a lot of these coins, so um he, he transferred a lot of them recently for charitable purposes. So because you have that transparency in the blockchain world, transactions are visible. You can see who owns what. Um, so that is not great from a privacy perspective. Any personal data should be private as much as possible under GDPR. So GDPR class, what is private under GDPR? What is private data? An IP address is private data. Um mm-hmm patterns of transaction or private data. For example, even if you don't know a particular wallet's owner, if you know that particular wallet is purchasing Bitcoin every on a Tuesday, that is personal data about the owner of that wallet. And in mm-hmm. with forensics, you can find out who the owner of that wallet is. That is another aspect of GDPR. It has that um, jigsaw effect. If you can use a jigsaw of different pieces of data, to determine the person behind that data, then that is personal data. So even one piece of the jigsaw is personal data under GDPR because it can give you, if you like, a trail of breadcrumbs back to the owner of the data. And that is why blockchain in theory Uh is, well, not in theory, in practice, blockchain as is, is, uh, to be honest, not very compatible with GDPR and similar privacy laws. However, you don't have to put personal data on the blockchain. Um, and Linda Getz would kill me for saying on the blockchain. Ash, there, and there, she's right, there are thousands of blockchains, but just like we say, the internet, it's easier to say on the blockchain yes. than on a blockchain. Oh, good. Um, so, uh, so when you put personal data on the blockchain, it is there. One of the things then about personal our, our blockchain is it is um, permanent. That is Mm -hmm. the other problem. So it is permanent. For example, that transaction, me buying or selling Bitcoin, that is permanently recorded on the Bitcoin blockchain, that wallet XYZ purchased Bitcoin on XYZ date. That is a permanent transaction recorded in perpetuity on the Bitcoin blockchain. That is another of the problems. Um, GDPR and other uh, laws require that... um, personal data should be deletable, it should be erasable, and it should be amendable. If there are errors, it should be capable of being amended so that it is correct. But anything on a blockchain, it is permanent, it is not amendable, it is not fixable, it is as is. You can correct it later on, but you can't then control who sees which version, you know, which aspect of which, which you know, if you think of um, the Bitcoin blockchain as, you know, they are linear, they are one on top of the other, so it's like a great big ball of Jenga. You can't, you can't pull out the lower ones to fix them, you change the later ones. So if someone is just looking at, you know, block, you know, one of the blocks halfway down, the Bitcoin blockchain, they're looking at the data in there. Even if the data is corrected further on, there is still a public record of incorrect data. So GDPR and other privacy laws don't like that. They want data to be correct, they want it to be minimal. So theoretically, blockchain and privacy does not work together, they don't like
0: it thank you for the explanation and I mean you probably read all the papers there are and that caused a lot of turmoil in the blockchain industry at least in europe and I can totally understand that um this is a big issue so but you already also pointed out solutions to that problem maybe you can just i know that that of course it's difficult to give that in a short overview but maybe you can give us some insight on how um technical developers and lawyers can address that problem.
1: Certainly. Um, there are about 20 different solutions in, uh, in in keeping personal data off your blockchain. So there are the ring signatures, um which i uh, and multi-party signatures. The way a multi-party signature works is um you and I, for example, combine together or you know, a, a bunch of people combined together. Um and one of us, to, to own a wallet, this is a very simple explanation. Five or six people come together um, and to, to kind of have an address. That address then um, purchases the Bitcoin, but nobody knows who for sure, within that address, purchased that Bitcoin. You know, it's five or six people, but if you change those five or six people every time, you never know which of the people is purchasing the bitcoin so there is that's the way multi-party signatures work similar to ring signatures um, you've got salty and peppering um, this is where you add in white noise so that if you're transmitting data across a blockchain you add in extra irrelevant information so that People don't know which information is the important information. Um, Zero-knowledge proofs are by far the winner when it comes to transmitting data across blockchains. Uh-huh. Um, actually, there are three I'll, There are three steps to, if you like, um, creating privacy dimensions when you're transmitting data on blockchains. You have the on-ramp, the transmission of data, and then the off-ramp. So the uh-huh. on-ramp, for example, is if we're thinking of company A, buying or if, you know, if, if, for example, I'm buying something from you, if I'm buying your Bitcoin, for example, I have a wallet that is, if you like, my on-ramp. And then there's a transaction, the sale where I purchase, you know, the Bitcoin from you. And then there is your wallet, which is, if you like, the off-ramp. The information goes on and goes off. And so my wallet and more and more wallets are actually incorporating our privacy signatures. And you may not, people may not have realized that their wallets are actually incorporating signatures. You can press a button on your, you know, in your wallet to say um, generate new address some of these now are saying generate a new address every time you do a transaction, and that can be automatic. It's fabulous to see that that is now you know built in into these different wallets. So I go onto my wallet, I press that button, generate a new address, so I purchase Bitcoin from you. You uh-huh. um, don't know who was purchasing the, the, the information, but perhaps you also have one of these wallets where you also have a new address. So I don't even know that I'm purchasing it from you. And that way, and then in the middle... Um, so the blockchain can see that Bitcoin is being transferred, or we can cloak that transaction as, as, as well by using zero knowledge proofs, whereby um, the amount and you know where, where the details of what is being transferred are private as well. So you've got those three different areas, you know, those touch points where privacy solutions need to be incorporated to ensure that the full transaction is private.
0: Oh, okay, that's... Very good. Thank you for this explanation. I mean, I've been in this field also for a long time, and I know that this has been an issue, but I'm so happy that there are people like you and all the developers who develop solutions and make clear that actually blockchain and GDPR can work together if you just have compliant programming, which leads to my next question. Just, You you actually are working on a project or rather say an app on that, and Maybe you could tell us a little about about that.
1: Absolutely. We are working on a project called Hashed Privacy, where it's fabulous. So it is a risk assessment tool which analyzes the privacy risk within organizations. So that if, for example, an investor is deciding which of 10 investees, you know, if you've got 10 startups in front of you, which of those should you invest in? And so one of the things with privacy at the moment is people aren't aware that privacy is a financial risk for organizations. Um, There was a case, I think people are going to become aware of this due to case law happening. GDPR has been around for since 2016, effective since 2018. There hasn't been much case law and there hasn't actually been many fines. I call the fines from regulators the top down enforcement of GDPR, and then lawsuits from individuals like you and me is the bottom-up enforcement of GDPR. So there's been a little bit more on the top down, and we're only beginning to see now the bottom-up. There was, um, Max Rems is doing his best on the bottom-up, and there was a, a class-action lawsuit filed here in Dublin um, against Facebook on behalf of 500 million people across Europe for breach of our GDPR, our, our GDPR rights in Europe where following an earlier case by Max Schrems, the anticipated damages per person is likely to be 500 per person. So that's mm. 500 euros, conservative estimates, on behalf of 500 million people. So that's wow. 250 billion wow. of a conservative estimate. And that's just one instance of one breach by one company. Wow! So, so that is... Fabulous. Um, there's another class action, I mean, to see. Um, but you ask any individual in Europe about GDPR and they tell you what their company, their employer is doing to protect you know, GDPR. Individuals don't yet know how to enforce their own GDPR rights. But I think this case is a game changer. I think when this case goes to judgment and the the penalty becomes available, and I don't know how this company are going to refund all the people who are involved, you know, are you going to get your 500 quid? Am I going to get my 500 quid? I don't know how this actually works. Where does this 250 billion go? Um, It should go to us, but how? But that is just the first in what I think are going to be thousands, probably millions of cases against companies for breaching GDPR. So, 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 so now companies they see this coming. They think, oh, holy moly! Um, they're already complying as much as they can. Some companies and and some aren't. But this is a risk that companies are going to need to assess internally, and also when they're in. When if you're buying another company, if you're about to merge with another company or take over another company, have you looked at the privacy risk? and have you also analyzed it can you put a figure on that so what hash privacy does is we look at the privacy compliance with within organizations and we put a price in it to quantify it so that if i'm trying to decide which of these 10 startups i want to invest in i can say startups 1 to 3 they've got Zero privacy compliance, you know, startups, um, X, Y, and Z, they're perfect. And then, you know, the four in the middle, they're so-so. But I'm able to look, but maybe I prefer the four in the middle. Maybe I think their business model is better. So I can analyze the four in the middle and I can put a figure on how much it's going to cost them. I, I know what their risk of liability is at the moment. Maybe the cost at the moment for not having a DPO is... A fine that was issued recently was fifty thousand for not having a data protection officer when they should have had a data protection officer. So, if you like the going rate um, from regulators, is fifty thousand for not having a DPO. So, I can say to them, "Look, fix this. Get your DPO. It's only going to cost you. You know, you're you're at risk of fifty thousand. Fix it, and then I'll be happy to invest in you because I don't want. You know, if I'm investing fifty thousand in your company, I don't want that fifty thousand just going to a regulator." You know, nominate someone in your organization to be a DPO, and then recover off that risk of fifty thousand. So, so this tool it 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 analyzes um, privacy compliance, and then it puts um, a realistic figures based on real life case law to 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 quantify the risk. That way, I, as an investor or you know, a purchaser of entities, know which of them to buy. I can prioritize. You know, which of them are easier fixes to become compliant, which of them not to touch? Because, you know, would I invest in a company where there's an active lawsuit against it, where the likely outcome is going to be at least 250 billion for the first lawsuit against them? I'd be considering, you know, I'd be, yeah, I'd be thinking about my investment in that company, you know, get my investment out now before that, you know, 250 billion. hits because privacy risk it is a financial it is a quantifiable risk and the more these cases happen the higher those and you know the more the the, the class action lawsuits happen the more of which will educate you and i as individuals about how we we protect our own gdpr rights and then we bring our own personal lawsuits we don't wait for the class action lawsuits we bring our own personal lawsuits against breaching companies and also um one of the reasons there hasn't been much top-down, much regulator enforcement of GDPR is because it has been a bit of a, um, mm-hmm. one particular one particular regulator who shall remain um, nameless has not been enforcing GDPR. Their government may or may not have given them the, the resources to actually properly enforce GDPR. So um, due to various things, which we don't need to go into here, that logjam is probably going to be removed from that particular company. Free due to tax and other you know changes across Europe so I think regulator enforcement over the next five years is going to escalate dramatically also the class action lawsuits I mean we've just seen the first one launched there's going to be thousands of those in the next few years so companies need to think about their own you know put a price on their own privacy compliance and it is something that it's going to be a normal part of due diligence when you're purchasing or investing in a in a company. So you're going to see investment funds, which is where, you know, I started my career. Um, they do a lot of due diligence on the companies they're considering buying shares in, the companies they're considering investing in. And that's why I, I could see that this was something that needed to happen. This due diligence into companies' privacy risk. Another use of this is actually um vendor risk assessment. You know, if I'm if I'm outsourcing, you know, in my particular organization, you know, um, the payroll, if I'm outsourcing, you know, my payroll services to a third party organization, something GDPR requires us all to do is to, am I analyzing my payroll provider? I should be conducting due diligence on them to make sure that they are treating my employees' sensitive information Um in compliance with GDPR, and there aren't a lot of tool, there are some at the moment. There aren't a lot of tools to allow people to analyse this um, this risk in their vendors, and that is an essential part of GDPR, which uh, which yeah, a lot of people aren't aware of yet. So it has quite a lot of useful uses.
0: And so, what are you especially working on? What what can I get from you in the
1: end? So what we're working on now is we're still building the content. We have developers lined up ready to go. The way the content is structured, it's taken a lot of ceiling gazing on my behalf to make something very easy for people to use. It's a very, very user-friendly system, super user-friendly. You don't need any privacy knowledge to use it. You just answer lots of questions Uh and we give you the right answer. And then it drills down and it gives you a number and the number is correct. But mm-hmm. it's taken us a lot of ceiling gazing and a lot of thinking to make sure that the questions we ask are the right questions and they're easy questions and they're questions people know the answer to. Yeah. So, so we're we're kind of done with the ceiling gazing. We're moving shortly to MVP and mm-hmm. we'll have an MVP hopefully before the end of the year. And then we'll be, um, yeah, available on your, yeah, we'll be going to sale then early next year.
0: Wow. I'm really looking forward to that. I think many companies could do well um, having such a solution because we're still seeing so many privacy breaches and you underlined perfectly what cons- what financial consequences could come out of them, especially if these mass actions trials are really taking off. And looking at the situation, at least that I face here in Germany, we have many legal tech providers here that are actually targeting consumers to move forward with such privacy damage claims, and because no. they give they give a very easy entry level of making such a motion. I mean, you can sit on your couch and watch Netflix while you upload or while you enter your data for them, and then they they just move ahead with a motion. So it's like it's not a, it's not a hassle of going to a lawyer and finding a lawyer and checking it all out. It's just something you do on your couch, and that totally is a, that probably is a total game changer for the whole privacy field once we have mass actions which with a lot of financial damage for companies
1: that's fascinating i was wondering who would be the first person to launch um yeah that kind of you know ambulance chasing system where uh because yeah the the thing with gdpr is you don't need to prove damages you just need to show breach so any kind of technical breach and companies Needed to pay up when I was at Mitsubishi, and we saw GDPR coming in at MUFG. I should say, um, I always thought the bottom-up enforcement was a much, much more expensive, a much greater risk for companies than the top-down. Regulators can only do so much. They're not going to go after you know hotels or or whatever. They're only going to pick you know the top maybe one hundred organizations in their country. They can't deal with everything. And what people people make complaints, I think, to regulators, but regulators they can they can't pay money to individuals. Individuals need to go to the courts. And then different courts all across Europe have different entry levels. In some countries, it's just too expensive to take a case. Um, but this kind of, as we call them, ambulance chasing tech companies making it uh, easy for people to start these cases. is going to really be, as you say, a game changer. One, one last point I'll make is when it comes to blockchain technology, so if you're a hotel or a bank or, you know, a regular uh, company using I'll call it traditional tech, you can change your systems very easily. The reason that privacy in, in companies using blockchain technology is so important is they need to build them to be compliant. Their tech stack needs to have incorporated privacy from the get-go. If you're a startup as a hotel or whatever, you can fix things later on. You can get your stuff up and running, you can talk to your you know your VCs, your angel funds, and you can you can fix your privacy later. If you're using blockchain technology, you need it right from the get-go because if you're building blockchain technology, it's wonderful, but it's not that adaptable as we know it today. Maybe this will change in the future, but um, like I was saying, you know, if you think of you know the Bitcoin blockchain, for example, as a huge game of Jenga, if you're trying to change, you know, the the, the Jenga pieces on the lower levels of that of that stack you're going to have issues further on and if you have got personal data in those lower levels you can't pull them out that's it they're built that way and you are at the mercy then of you know you the individuals whose data is captured in that permanent Jenga model. Wow
0: what do you think what will happen in the next two or three years with blockchain and privacy do you have any idea if we see any changes, if we see any changes to regulation or to the approaches of the regulators to blockchain when it comes to privacy?
1: There's, yes, I think um, privacy regulators on the one hand are looking at blockchain and I think privacy regulators are so swamped and so under-resourced in so many countries. Um, they're getting so many complaints because, as yet, yeah, individuals already know much about, you know, the ambulance-chasing firms. They're, they're angry. But so, so regulators are kind of too busy to even think about blockchain. And I think um, on the other side of the coin, then, you have financial regulators who are worried about... Um, the dark web and Bitcoin gets a very bad name, you know, hackers, they want to be paid in Bitcoin. And the, the funny thing about that is, you know, so many, most, the majority of, the majority of cryptocurrencies are public. So, you know, you don't want, they shouldn't want to be paid in Bitcoin. Um, but uh so so financial regulators dislike the evolution of privacy solutions in the crypto world and in the blockchain world. And Moraid McGuinness, who is one of the um the high-ranking uh politicians at the European level, she was talking about a a crackdown on privacy solutions in the blockchain world. She doesn't like privacy coins, that kind of thing. She thinks it's anti-AML, anti-KYC, but there does need to be a balance. Um, Although GDPR does talk about, you know, the free flow of information, the free flow of trade across borders and across Europe, it's, You can't have a whole system of technology being built where you forbid privacy being incorporated into that system when within 10 years, I think, um, definitely within 20 years, everything will be run on blockchain technology. It's so much faster. It's so much better than regular technology. Financial regulators cannot come out today to say we're prohibiting the use of privacy technology being incorporated into this kind of technology. So it'll be interesting to see how that works, how that happens um you yeah, that's a very interesting we're at a very very interesting point here you know, the battle of the regulators, the financial versus the privacy
0: absolutely, ash, it's been such a pleasure, but we're nearly one hour in now, and time just flies when you when when I listen to you and all your enthusiasm about blockchain and privacy so I'd say we cut it for today and we probably make another show in a couple of months and see how it went for you and where your your project of hash privacy is going. I would love to hear on that. And maybe we can talk about the cases that you already mentioned and how they move forward. So it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show again, Ash. And I hope that uh, you will come back.
1: Thank you so much, Dennis. And I look forward to speaking to you in the future.
0: Absolutely. Ash, thank you.
1: Thanks, Dennis. Bye.
0: Bye.